This podcast series is sponsored by Havwitz, the prevailing name in beautiful wood flooring design. Gracing the surfaces of hotels, workspaces, private residences and more, Havwitz offers stunning wood flooring and cladding options in all conceivable colours and designs. Visit our showrooms today or contact us for more detail at havwoods.com forward slash UK. Hello and welcome to the interior design business. My name is Jeff Hayward and we're recording this episode in front of a live audience at the sofa.com showroom in Glasgow. <laughs> I'm here today with my co-host, Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of Tasuta Interiors, past president of the British Institute of Interior Design, and the author of the Institute's A Client's Guide to Working with an Interior Designer. And that's great because today we're addressing the question of how do you find the right interior designer for your project? Buying a designer interior is unlike any other purchase. It isn't, for example, like buying a red jacket. If I want a red jacket, I can spot one in a clothes shop, check the price tag and label, feel the fabric, admire the colour, look in the mirror to see that it fits me and looks good, pay for it and leave the store completely satisfied in under 10 minutes. But commissioning interior design is altogether more complicated. The client knows they have a project and a set of requirements. They have a budget figure in mind. They know when they want the project to end and they may know what they like, but beyond that, they have no idea what the finished product will be. For most people, that is a truly daunting prospect. The answer, of course, is to get professional help. But where can you go to find this wonderful person who truly gets you and will be able to give you the perfect product and then once you think you found them how can you be certain that they will deliver let's find out welcome to the interior design business so to help us untangle this conundrum we are joined by three very experienced professional designers Jackie Fiskin of Ampersand Interiors, Nikki Emlick of NM Design, and well-known designer and broadcaster, John Amarble. Welcome to the show, all of you. And Susie, I think you want to introduce them. I was going to say, before we begin, I was hoping that perhaps each of you would be able to give us a brief introduction about yourselves and also your business. Jackie, do you want to kick that off and go first? Yep. I'm Jackie Fiskin and I am Design Director of Ampersand Interiors and we are based in Edinburgh and we also have a small showroom in London as well. Um, we concentrate largely on residential interior design and we do small hotels, commercial projects that where largely people want something a bit more interesting. So that's, that's us. And, and John? And I'm John O'Mabley and I'm addicted to soft furnishings. Uh, I'm John O'Mabley and I've been designing since about 1986. I started very young and we concentrate on mostly residential small hotels, mostly in the west of Scotland, but we do travel. Um, people probably recognise me from 60 Minute Makeover and other challenging design programmes on TV where I've had to adapt my skills to make sure it's all broadcastable. <laughs> Hi everybody, I'm Nikki Emlick and I'm from NM Design. Uh, we're based in London and in Edinburgh. Um, 
we have a small business that we work on largely residential projects like Jackie, but we do some nice commercial ones too. Um, some nice hotels, some nice bars, one in Glasgow. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's basically what we do. And I think you also do some work abroad too. Oh, we do. We do lots of work abroad. Yeah, a lot of work in Cayman Islands for my sins, but we love that. We love that. We've been working in the Cayman Islands for 18 years, which is quite a long period. But yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Excellent. So we're going to kick off by First of all, getting some definitions straight. So what actually is interior design and what's the difference between interior design and interior decoration? Jackie, do you want to go first? Um, interior design for me, there's lots of different definitions, but for me, it's taking an accurate brief from a client, developing a design concept that's good on both practicality and aesthetics. It's not just all about the look, it also has to work and ideally bringing into budget. That's the challenge. Um, and in terms of interior design and decorators, do you know, I think when I started out, which is over 35 years ago now, um, it was mostly interior decorators. And that's people who largely sell FF&E and &E in, are in procurement. These days, it's become, it's a hugely changed industry. And actually now there's so many technical aspects, plans, elevations, visuals, drawings. We're consulted on so many different aspects of the job. So yeah, I think it's hugely different. So I would say interior, that's interior design, interior decorators maybe concentrate more on product. To me? Anything to add to that, John? Uh, very much the same. And I think it's all in the interpretation. It just depends on when you get the client, how big the project's going to be. Is it purely decorative? Is it soft furnishings? Addiction again. Is it just <laughs> curtains, maybe a feature wall? It depends on the size and the scale of the project. I would say determine whether it was a design project or whether it was decoration. From For my money, my design background started in interior architecture. So I do start very early with architects to define spaces as well. So I'm from A to Z guy. And what about you, Nikki? Do you find most people approach you for design first and then decoration? Yes. Or yeah, absolutely. But I feel that we rarely do a project that doesn't see it through to the end. So many projects that we do, and I don't know about you guys, but um, there's very, very few projects that we deliver without adding the last candle detail, adding the last cushion detail, the artwork, you know, so there's all of that detail that finishes off the project to the latter, so the customer's really happy. So but, but, in, including, sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. In, but including the interior architectural side as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. So it's design first, yeah. decoration. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, I always think that that's, that's way, one way I, of describing it is that interior designers decorate, but interior decorators don't necessarily mm, design because yes. it's the front end. Yeah. Anyway, so Nikki, what do you think are the advantages of using? Why should people use an interior designer? So many reasons, really. Um, I would say cost effective. If you get a good interior designer that you really work with well, um, the cost effective value is, is huge because you won't make the mistakes. They'll guide you through all the intricacies of developing your project from start to finish and they'll push you. They'll push you through your boundaries. You know, our clients will say to us, you know, you've kind of, you've taken me from this level to this level of like, I would never have gone down that route but I love what I've had delivered. So I, I, think, I think there's lots of reasons why an interior designer, and, and also if you get the right one, if you get the right marriage of an interior designer, it's a partnership. Um, I feel that you, um, 
nine times out of ten we become friends with them I mean it's crazy we really do build friendships on the back of it so we get the nice referral work from it etc but I just think I just think working with an interior designer is really really fun if you do get the right one yeah I would agree and I think people are very budget conscious and I always like to think that I'm helping people avoid make expensive mistakes or equally get get them to see how they can get more bang for their buck. Say, definitely spend on this because it's worth it. It's going to be comfortable, it's going to last a lifetime. This is quite faddy. Let's move that, but that, that might change in a couple of months. So again, it's about managing a project for longevity. And I'm not there to impose my personal style. It's help to help people grow into the style and to evolve and explain what they like. But saying that, John, would you say that uh, a lot of people think interior design is just for rich people? I, I think in, when, in the 80s when I started, yes, it was very elitist and the decoration side in, in London, it was someone with a double-barreled name that could afford that <laughs> lovely, lovely option to have someone help you out. But I think things have become much more affordable, much more accessible. You think of the amount of magazines on the shelves now where it used to be mostly fashion. It's 50-50 with interior design. It's a huge industry now. And people are savvy. People with the likes of Pinterest and Instagram and watching podcasts, there's, there's so much out there for them to see and to formulate their own opinion. I wouldn't say it's rich people, but I would say that actually having an appropriate budget for the project is probably the key thing. So actually it doesn't have to be elitist, but actually as long as you know what you're trying to achieve on a budget and that in itself is a reasonable target, then that's a good place to start. Are there, Jackie, are there, are there different types of interior designers? You know, if I'm, if I, if I've got a project and I want to look for an interior designer. Totally. There are lots of different types of d designers. Some, are, some have a signature look and you know, you know exactly what you're going to purchase because you, they have a style and actually there's maybe a security in that because you think, I love that style, I can buy that from that, that des particular designer. Or there are a whole raft of designers who do a more bespoke service and will design for you. Um, that's the sort of, we, as Ampersand, we don't have a signature style. So really we'll talk to our client, establish what that style is, offer suggestions, hopefully take them on a journey that incorporates their look. But yes, I think that's probably encompasses that. And would you agree with that? Do you think that's the main difference? Yeah, I would. I would. I would say that it's a bit like the Spice Girls. Do you like baby spice or do you like sporty spice? And I think, especially with some of the designers I've worked with on TV, and some of my TV contemporaries do have a specific style. And if you went to one designer in particular and you wanted a Rococo over-the-top look, that is what you're going to get. That's his distinctive look. And he's worked with that and that works for him. But I think when you're looking for a designer, you have to think, yes, there's something about them. Is it their engaging personality? Obviously their body of work. You must have seen something that has floated your boat and then you go with them. For me, it's more about comfortability and the wow factor. And what... A bit of my background was working in television as well, so I had to design sets that and use colours that would impact. And I want people to walk into a room and, and think, wow, I want it to have the wow factor. So I think, if anything, I give a sort of comfortability, but there's a few pings that we just make things go, not glitter like we were talking about earlier on. I'm not really a glitter person. Well, maybe at the weekends, if it's right for the client. 
I think for me, it's about getting it right for the client. And if I can bring along my comfortability with the wow factor, with a bang for your buck, I've done my job. And looking at it from a client's perspective, Nikki, I mean, how important is it for the client to do their homework? It's very important because like what I was talking about earlier, it's a relationship and it can be for quite a long period of time. Um, so you've really got to be able to connect with someone and really understand you. We work on a philosophy of putting you into your home. I'm never going to live in your home. It's really, really important. But we have a certain style and we design a certain way. So, yeah, I mean, getting, getting the right designer is absolutely prime for you. And looking for someone who is... I think it, that goes back to styling again. I think, you know, what you talked about Pinterest and so much imagery. I mean, when, when I started interior design, we were working out of the interior design book. <laughs> there was no internet. So it's, it was so much harder back in the day. Now it's just kind of everybody can be an interior designer, which is great. You know, everyone's got their own style and they want to adopt it. But how do you then narrow it down? And that's where a good interior designer that you will work with closely will guide you. So on that basis, is Instagram a good place to find interior designers? I think Instagram's a great place to find interior design inspiration because you can actually, it's so much better, as you were saying when I started, you was design magazines and that was it. And actually finding that style, now you can really narrow down your interior design style and say, and also not every client is familiar with the language. So when they're describing what they want, actually knowing the words to describe that style. I, well, one of the first jobs when I started in interior design, I was told by a client that I, they wanted a really wow look. And a new book had come out by Zandra Rhodes and it was all, it was geometric stripes and it was orange and it was turquoise. I thought, oh, wow, this is really wow. But actually, they hated it, absolutely hated it. And of course, the thing is that, as my fellow designer told me, she said, but did you look at the rest of the house? It was a hint of peach. So a little bit of wow was actually probably... Dark peach. Yes, terracotta <laughs> might have done it, but not my Zandra Rhodes collection. So actually, knowing the language, Instagram's great for that, because Instagram, you can identify a look really easily. And... Is there a danger, though, that people will kind of think, oh, I'm going to have that wall in that style, and that wall in that <laughs> style, and that wall in that style? Because you're only ever seeing things in two in two dimensions effectively on Instagram. I think the good thing about Instagram is we probably all spent a fortune on websites, advertise, you know, features and magazines to set up a whole interior. We can equally very quickly log on four new looks that we did yesterday. And for people, it is much easier for them to say, well, I quite like the lamps in that room, but I certainly don't want any monkeys, but I love lemon. <laughs> so they can, that actually happened last week. <laughs> But it allows people to see and say, well, I do like this, but I don't like that. And I, I had one client who said, you can do what you like in this room, but I must have a Champs-Élysées. <laughs> Champs-Élysées. <laughs> so we got, there, we got there in the end, but it was by pointing. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think, Nikki, that attractive photos can actually be a little bit misleading? Spatial awareness, definitely. Size, you know, you can look at a beautiful, um, we were looking at one recently with a, a client who said, I need this bedroom, I've got to have this, it's from Pinterest, it's so moody, it's so cool. But you haven't got that ceiling. It's really important, you haven't got the height. Mm. So it's really important to kind of look at it and be able to adapt that. 
you know, really understand that not necessarily that image can translate into the project that you're doing. It's that 2D, 3D thing, isn't it? Yeah. I, but I also think that if someone's looking for a designer, the risk of just looking at an interior's photograph is it's not always obvious what the person, what the designer has done in that room. Yeah. Absolutely. They, and on they, Instagram, whether the designer actually did the interior yeah, being yeah, illustrated. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, you know, I think there are, there are pitfalls mm -hmm. for prospective clients unless they're careful. It's so a good place to start. It's a great place to start, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. What about recommendations from friends? Is that a good way? I mean, um, Nikki, you were saying that you get a lot of referral work from, right. from satisfied customers. Entire business is based on recommendation, which is crazy. Um, you know, for years and years and years, I might not hear from someone for a few years. I can never change my phone number. It's got to stay the same. <laughs> but it's literally, it comes back in cycles, which is so lovely. It's like, I know a friend of so-and-so that you did a project for. I love what you did. Can you come and do my house? Or it's a repeat client. So, yeah, really, really good. And obviously, if they're a good friend, they're never going to re recommend you someone who's bad, right? They're always going to give you their story, their version, their variation, you know, budgets, costings, delivery, installation, you know, did you over, you know, over promise and under deliver or vice versa? I always try to do the other. <laughs> it's important, right? But I think also that some clients, especially in my experience, have kept you as their best kept secret and they don't want to share you. So it's a bit like, I'm a bit too old to be a toy boy now, but you know, I was always kept, oh, are you going to be approaching any of my neighbours or and also it's like keeping up with the Joneses a little bit and also people yeah. sometimes don't want to know what budget they've spent yeah. so you have to be very careful with the recommendation system it's great to be recommended by anyone which is fantastic but you have to be careful and respect people's privacy and I would have thought working in friendship groups you don't want to upset somebody who's the friend of a really good client but it's quite nice as a designer as well. We've had loads of work for recommendation and groups of friends. But also, you know that when that person comes to you, this new client that's been recommended, they also don't want to upset their friend by being a client from hell. So actually, it's quite nice as the designer that the client wants to work with you. And from the designer, you know that you've been recommended and it was a good experience and a positive experience. And there's almost a shorthand that actually it's been good. So let's start on that basis. So, so I guess I guess the recommendation that you'd make for, for anyone out there that's actually looking for an interior designer is, is ask around, absolutely. see who else their friends have yeah, used. Yeah. Very good. Okay, so are there any lists of interior designers that clients can consult online? Absolutely, I would head straight to the BIID who have recommendations of designers and all those designers have been vetted by the organisation to ensure that they are competent to carry out their job, they've got the correct insurance, they know what they're doing. So you actually know from the outset that that's a really good place to start. So. Okay. Now Susie, I'm going to ask you as the author of the client guide, anything else that people might consult? <laughs> the client guide? <laughs> um, it's, on the, it's on the BIID website so you can just download it as a PDF if anyone is, is interested or wants to. And actually, if there, how many people in the audience are actually designers? Most of you, I'm guessing. Um, so if you, if you, it's a great thing to actually give to your clients. You can give it to them, you know, when you when you sign the contract or before you sign the contract, and just say, you know, this is this is something from the BID, and it just talks about, you know, the, how collaborative the process is and how you should work together with your designer. It's it's a useful document. Yeah. Got the plug out. The there we go. <laughs> All right. So. Um, 
how should the client go about working out what sort of designer they need? So, and by this, what I'm really getting at is, I've got a project, I'm, I want to do so many rooms and, and I've got this much to spend. How do they know at a practical level the best person to talk to? If they're shortlisting two or three. I think if, if you initially get a feeling from someone that they understand where you're living and how you live, and they think of the function of each room, because it could be somebody downsizing, they're bringing a lot of furniture with them, which, to be honest, is not one of our favorite things to do because it's much more problematic and a bit more time consuming to make sure that that maybe beloved grand piano is going to go in this new look. So I think it's, if someone's talking your language, <laughs> You know, as again, finding out the function and where they're going and understanding and even just having a conversation about things you like. You get you get a vibe from somebody if it's someone that you get on with. And that's really important because you are in and out of their house for six months to a year and even through COVID, a couple of years when projects stopped and started. So you're part of the family for quite some time. So it's important you get that relationship right. Jackie, have you got anything to add to that? Come on, face to face appointment. Face to face appointment. Actually, go meet people, speak to them, talk about how they work, find out. Go on their website. Most people will say the services they provide. You'll see images of the projects and the products that they've provided. And actually, but actually, yes, getting speaking to somebody and actually saying, you know, it's quite a personal relationship as well. You talked about the duration of it. But I remember one client telling me that actually she found it really quite awkward. She wanted to tell me that she wanted a double-ended bath. You know, another lady told us that she wanted to keep quite a bit away from her husband in bed. They'd been married for so long, clearly. <laughs> and I was just, you know, you get to know all the details of people's families. Yeah. And actually, so, so they keep in their bed, yes, exactly. <laughs> and what size of pasta? One lady wanted her, her cupboards designed to hold lar extra large bottles of Coke. I mean, it, you know a lot about these people, so actually make sure you get on with your designer. Some designers claim to offer services that they might be unable to deliver. How do you think clients can protect themselves against the, uh, or this type of designer? I would say go on their website. Have they done similar projects that show those services being done? Talk to them about how they handled it. Um, you know, just try and gauge a bit of information about them. What services do they employ in-house? Do they have interior architects? What are their qualifications? Just find, again, institutes like the, the BIID will tell you. Um, they'll have been accredited. They'll know whether they're able to carry out these services. Have you ever found yourself in a project where, you, where you've thought, this client is asking me to do something that I can't actually do? Usually by that time, I'm off. <laughs> no, I think it's important for any designer to realise their own capabilities. And I certainly wouldn't want to overstretch or overpromise and indeed make a, a mistake with someone else's money. So unless I can come to the party with the right tools for the job and equally have the right tradesmen to know that I can bring my team with me, then there's no point in us going any further. If it's basically an architectural shell with very, lim very little inside, but architectural inside spaceshipness, as I call it, then that's not for me. 
How about you, Nikki? But I think there's also there's the specialist that you bring on board as well as a company. It doesn't end with you, or it starts with you. Obviously, you bring the your client into your into your circle and your network. But you know, I do heavily rely on the specialists that we work with time and time and time again because they prove their worth also. So it works. It works that way. And I think there might be a misconception about what interior designers actually do, yeah. and particularly some of the TV shows. We're not that builders. Are, well. <laughs> You're, you're not artists, you're not yes, upholsterers. That's right, you know, that's you right. You get people in to do those things. Yeah, you kind of get drawn into the web of, you know, you're a magician. No, you're not. I'm not a fairy. Um, but, it, but it is true, you know, you kind of expect to do quite a lot, like you said earlier with the question. It's, you have to know, you have to know yourself and own that and say, you know what, I don't know that, but I know someone who does. And I think that network of people is super important. And I guess I guess the way you convey that to the client is really important. Do you know how, so how do you go about conveying your competency? You you know you're in that first meeting, you're having that first telephone call. Are there you know how do you give the prospective client confidence that you can deliver? I suppose just by the ability, you know, we've been all been in business for quite some time, so we've likely tackled similar projects, and you can talk through them and explain how they were handled and the process they'll go through and just try and reassure them and perhaps show images of projects that you've done, not on the phone call, obviously, but direct them to your website and say, you know, this in this particular project, we tackled something similar in this way. And I think then hopefully you're able to, to reassure people. And then, so, and then once they've narrowed down their choice, you know, you've, they've, they've done all their homework and they've got maybe a, a short list, what should the client do next? they'll always ask the very important question, how much is this going to cost me? So that is when you get into the area of how much time is required for the job, what is their budget, how can you manage it? And for me, I always try it and take it through a phase where you're showing the initial presentation to get everybody on board and then you can start apportioning some finances and times and budgets to things. So I think from anybody meeting a design for the first time, they should see, let's get on board with a look in the design, which can be fine-tuned, but how's this going to work? Where do you come in? Do we just get the board and come back and turnkey and it's finished? Or site management, quality checking. So it's about creating what you could call call maybe a soft contract so that they will understand. And I think once everything's laid out, and I think it's important to ask what people's expectations of you are as well. If in doubt, I always prefer to ask the question and that let them tell me what they expect from me first, and then I can go in and over-deliver. <laughs> in the, the time-honoured fashion. But do you, think, do you think clients generally, when they pick up the phone in that first phone call, they, they don't really understand what you're going to give them? Yes, frequently. I don't think people, especially if you've never used an interior designer before, you don't know the process. And I think being able to actually talk someone through, this is how we work. We've got a, a document that we send out to all prospective clients. Says, this is how we work. And this is what you'll get at each stage of the way. And this is, you know, what you can expect. And no, we won't provide you with one scheme. And if you don't like it, that's tough. Because I think lots of people worry that actually by engaging an interior designer, what happens if they don't like it? So we just talk them through that and how it might work and the professionals that'll be involved and what's expected of them at each stage as well. Um, so I think being upfront about that is really good. And, you know, questions are good. If people ask the question, we can answer them and hopefully reassure them. Sorry, I was no, just no, going to no. say, I think that's where the questionnaire comes into it as well. So send a questionnaire to your client and really get 
in, in under the structure of their homes, their lives, the animals that they have, the kids that they're planning to have, you know, the whole future proof in their home is really, really important. So I think I think all that is really helpful. And throughout that process, Nikki, you're building empathy as well, aren't yeah, you? Absolutely. You're understanding totally. what the client emotionally wants. Yes, it's a, it's an emotional journey for both client and designer. Well, Definitely. Especially if you're doing someone's home. Yeah, Let, it's emotional, so emotional work, totally. It's, it's so personal. Very personal. Yeah. And sometimes it's difficult working with a couple and you get on with one of them more than the other and you think you're siding with them or, <coughs> oh, for goodness sake, don't tell Malcolm how much those cushions were. <laughs> you know, from that point of view, and again, it gets back to the sort of marriage guidance. You have to manage, without marriage guidance, their relationship through the design process as well. So there is a little bit of... I won't say underhand, I'll say attention to psychology sometimes to find what, what what works with people. Yes, it is. No one ever told me that I had to be a psychologist first before it. No one ever let us know that, did they? I'm sure I tried to work myself out. <laughs> that sort of scenario, that who is the decision maker? Mm -hmm. I think that, and again, sometimes it can come down to money and, and the sort of makeup of the couple and how they've come to the fact. It, sometimes it's one of one part of the couple want the service and the other one think, oh, I think you do a perfectly good job yourself, darling. Why do we need him? So you you've got it's like you kind of got to prove yourself as well. So it's prove your worth and prove it's worthwhile them seeing the value of what you're bringing to the party. It's mm. easier commercially, because commercially <laughs> there's usually someone who is responsible for the project. But in a marriage, you can't really ask the husband and wife, who's going to make the decision? Because that's mm -hmm. a really, really sort of <laughs> difficult one to, mm -hmm. to get across. Yeah. Yes. So you have to sort of feel your way quite sensitively through that and just sort of, we've had clients where the, the husband may want to do something really bold and contemporary and the wife may want to do something really traditional and actually you have to tread a line because if you go sometimes down the middle, that's not going to work for either of them. So you have to really plot your path quite carefully. And you have to be comfortable enough that you can take some chances and throw in the Zandra Rhodes cushion. <laughs> <laughs> Throw in something that's a little bit out of the ballpark, out of the the whole look of the project, because that's you taking them one step further. That's what they want you on board for, surely. You know, they need you there to push them, definitely. And Nikki, you mentioned that you produce a questionnaire, you send a questionnaire to prospective clients. It's, would it be a good idea for prospective clients to actually come to you with a written brief? Oh, it'd be amazing. It's very rare that we get one of them. What's one of those? I can't even tell you how many times I've but literally as, written know, a as, brief. As an advice, as a piece of advice to people looking for interior designers, would it be a good idea for them to, to put to jot some notes down? 100%. And what should they include? What, what, what are those key things that they should be talking about? Future proof in their home is a really big one for me because we don't want the, the here and now is great, but actually, you know, if you don't talk about the family that you're going to plan to have, or you know, if you're going to be there, it's 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 not your forever home. You know, what does that look like in your costs, your budgets? You know, kind of how far you're going to take it. All those things are really important. So many of those are really political decisions for so a couple. What? Yeah. I'm, I'm amazed if some of these projects don't end up actually in divorce or separation. <laughs> yeah, sometimes yeah. they do. They sometimes oh. do, yeah, it's true. It's true. And then you've got to help them readdress <laughs> what's going where. Well, yes. that would be lovely, but he's got the dining table, I've got the chairs. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think the biggest part of all that is, as a designer, you kind of... You, 
you're in there for the to, to, to get the fun into it you've got to make lighthearted of that so when they do go into that kind of structure of arguing over it you, you, you're trying to mobilize that very very quickly I think that's really important there's usually a path there's usually a line where as the designer that's what they're paying us for you're paying us for it to show you the way through this maze and mm -hmm. to pull a cohesive hole together. And so actually you just have to find that path and mm. then hopefully you hope that both parties will agree that this is a good route to go down. Is it reasonable, do you think, for the client in that first phone call to say to the designer, how much, how much are you going to charge me? That's always the most difficult thing. I, I actually started saying, are you aware of on a building site what a structural engineer does or a quantity surveyor they will look at the project in its entirety and show you bit by bit how much the project could cost but sometimes and, and more often than not if you visit a house and it's just maybe a small element of one room it's not a whole design service where you can't really charge a whole fee for the whole room so I actually say I'll, I'll base it on the what I think my time spent in each area. And I think they think then they're getting more value for money. There's no point in charging a whole room when I'm only choosing the sofas, the chairs, the throws, maybe a feature wall, a couple of lamps, when you're not taking it back to the bones. But I think when people get an understanding that you understand their project, then you can then go in to say, well, I'm X amount for this, for design proposal is that, this is the management side, if you want to come and dress this, right down to, as you were saying, the candles. I mean, the amount of people said, oh, do you actually do cups and saucers? We do the whole package. We want you to, I don't want to do something beautiful and you walk in with something from my, <laughs> a large DIY store. Oh, <laughs> Excuse me, Excuse me uh, from another, or many other stores that are available. Um, you know, and they could bring something in that completely ruin the whole look. So you want to know that you can give them that full service, but this it's the, it's the million dollar question that everyone wants to know, how much is this going to cost me? You can tell them their wallpaper is X amount of roll and they'll need six rolls, that's there. But this invisible design service is what scares people. Yeah. But the fee, is the, it's the interesting one. You, it's a reasonable question to ask how much it's going to cost, but you can't possibly answer it that first appointment. And I'd be quite upfront about that. So we always do an appointment with the client and you know, we discuss the brief and once you know you have an idea about what the client wants, you're able more to put a fee on that. Now that's just the design, but also the client wants to know how much the project's going to cost. So then comes the slightly more difficult discussion because people don't always want to tell you how much they want to spend. They might, partly because they always think we're going to spend it, which is actually not the truth, um, but also but because they might not know and they don't want to embarrass themselves by putting in a ridiculously low figure or a ridiculously high figure so there's an element of trust in all of that as well but actually knowing you know from we try and advise a client give based on their brief what we think the project will cost but obviously not you know if they choose a fabric at 200 pounds a meter or a fabric at 20 pounds a meter that will hugely affect the cost do you separate out the design fees from everything else yes yeah. absolutely and, and Nikki how do you deal with a question from from a client when they ask you how much is it going to cost me how long's a piece of string? Literally, and it's so difficult because every project's a bespoke project, right? So you go into their home, or they come and see you, and they've got some sort of a an idea what they want. 
it's the time, it's the detail, it's the, it's the other specialists on board. You know, it's, it's, it's the things that they don't even know what they want at that point. So when you start throwing figures at them too early, all of a sudden you're making false promises. You can't do that because they're going to hold you to it down the line and say, well, you told me it's going to cost this and it's now yeah, costing me this. So we're really, really honest with that. We're straightforward. This is, this is what it's going to cost you once we've got down the, down the line of the brief. We've really got it kind of concreted and we say, we've got to be... We've got to be careful with this. I think that's really interesting, the whole managing expectations side. 100%. As, as a designer, you don't want to overpromise something that they can't possibly afford. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's the, the, the trap is that the, the first number you give them is the only number they ever remember. Yes. They'll always remember the it. The only number. <laughs> exactly. You have to be super careful with that. Mm. So do you give like a range? I mean, John, do you give a range of prices that it could possibly be? I think I always try to meet people in their home for the first meeting. And without being too nosy, I kind of gauge and see the value of what they've spent. Because that gives me a kind of worth and their expectation. If I know that they bought these ready-made curtains from a high street store, then I know that expectation of how much that element of the project is going to be. So I won't be going for a bespoke, double-width, bumper-lined, huge headings or whatever to enhance or create a new look. Again, it's about managing the expectations and there's nothing worse than showing someone something and they can't afford it. So that, that, I think that avoids any embarrassment by sort of assessing who they are before they even start to talk about money. And then you, you in your mind then think, well, you could probably take them to that area, save some money in that area. And I think it, it's about it's about man management as well, and a little bit of the psychology again. And again, you never want to over-deliver or over-promise. Mm -hmm. And equally in the last like four or five years, I've said, you know, that this is the design concept now. If you come back to me in two months' time, I may have to change one element of this because it's no longer available. I can't get it for two years. You're trying to do it within this time scale, so that's going to change things. And I, I think explaining the flexibility and then lets them understand the amount of detailed time that you are actually spending on their job. But what's really interesting, what John said there is absolutely right, but this is how this industry is so diverse. I've been to visit a client that lives in a caravan at that point because they've bought the land, they're evolving as a couple, you know, they're getting, they're getting stronger, more powerful to be able to spend the money. And how do you judge it from there? There's nothing to judge. So you're just back to the psychology again, which is interesting. We've developed sort of, I mean, again, been in business for a long time now. And so you have a gut feeling about how much a project is going to cost. And you are able to guide a client and give indications of cost. Not, you know, it's very hard because you try so hard not to be caught and trapped by that initial, as you say, that first figure. But, but again, that's where experience comes in and you are able to sort of indicate an approximate budget and have that initial conversation. It doesn't mean you have to spend that budget because if someone comes back and says, oh, well, I haven't got that, then you are able to tell them what they can achieve for that. But at least that conversation has started and you're managing it's it. Not just, it's not just the budget either, it's also the time. I mean, what do you do if a client comes to you and, and how do you tell them that what they're asking for is impossible, that it will not be possible to renovate this five-bedroom, four-storey house by next week? <laughs> um, well, that's a frequently asked question, unfortunately. But, 
you try and tell them what you can achieve for that. And if it's impossible, then it's something that you said in earlier, then we just have to walk away because you don't want to promise you can do something because then a client is obviously going to be disappointed. And also you're going to give yourself an absolute nightmare trying to pull it off. Mm. So, so yeah, we wouldn't do that. But we would be quite upfront about what was possible, what they can achieve, and you know, do our best to pull together something that approximates the, approximates the original brief. I mean, sadly, I worked on something called 60 Minute Makeover, which was, <laughs> it's the question I'm asked all the time, A, do we do it in 60 minutes? And yes, we did, it was two and a half hours as live. However, there was 40 people there. Everything was on a conveyor belt. It was a quick fix. I wouldn't go too close onto maybe some of the finishes. We didn't use any oil-based paints because they can't dry in the time. So for the look and for the 60 minutes, yes, it worked. But again, that has actually muddled up people's imagination of how quickly things can be done. And for a quality project, a product and project, things take time. Totally. And we're talking about another um, aspect of the relationship, I suppose, trust. And the client has to trust you and believe Huge. the advice you're giving. Absolutely, I think it's hugely important and that's back to how you engage them. You have to meet them and you have to speak to them and you have to be able to transmit that you are able to carry out the job and reassure them and yes, that and be able to talk to them. It's not an easy job and it's not an easy process. And if someone is going to knock seven bells out of your house, you want to know that you can actually speak to that person. They will be there, they'll scoop you up when you're crying because the colour's gone up on the wall and it's so blue. and will hold your hand and say, just wait for everything else to go in, because it's going to work, it's going to look great, but it's going to listen to your anxieties and, and just be there for you. And there's not a project that we've ever done that hasn't got to that stage where <laughs> the colour on the wall is like, I'm having a panic attack, this colour is way too dark. And then when they get it finished, they're like, wow, this is amazing. So it is, it is, it's a process. I think that's one of the hardest things in the project management side, especially if they're living in the home or they're visiting every day, is they're seeing things half done and they don't see the full picture. And a hundred times out of a hundred at the end, they say, I see what you mean now. Yes. But taking them through that and then say, I'll be around in an hour. You've just got to be calm. When this, you'll only see a bit of this because half of the wall will be covered with this. That colour will need to come through. Please trust me. And that's when you find, you, that that that's the huge personal side of things that they they don't probably think that you'll have to go into that level of intimacy. I, I think one of the problems is that domestic clients often will only do one big project in their life. You know, it's for a lot of couples. I mean, you do get people that have many homes and do it over and again, but often it's it's a once in a lifetime thing. So in a way, once a project's gone, it's gone. And if the client, if you if you've lost the project because the client actually hasn't believed what you've told them. Is there anything you can do about that? Have you ever, <laughs> have you, have you ever lost a job because the client wouldn't um, listen? I think if at any time, if, the, if you and the client have a misunderstanding and there's a loss of This is at the beginning though, not, not, not through. This is again, right at the beginning, this, this piece you where, you're, where you lose it because they want it done in three months and they want it done for a hundred grand and you know it's going to cost well, 400 grand and take be, a year. Is it, is it something um, yeah. I want to salvage? You want it because the, the, yes, the difficulty of actually pulling that off. If a client 
isn't hearing a realistic time, time frame and a realistic budget, we can't take it on. So you actually count yourself yes. lucky. Oh actually. gosh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm interested in all the anxiety issues you must face during a project. It must be absolute hell for you. Well, it's, it's emotional for us as well, because as a creative, we're very emotional beings. Is that right? So, so you take sensitive. things, you are sensitive <laughs> souls. We take things personally. You have to really learn to kind of grow a rhinoceros skin. It's, it's hard though, it's hard because you do take things personally. So we, um, we're a little, back, little bit like chefs, I guess. You know, we, we just like to, we like to be loved, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you want, every designer wants their client to love the project. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. I want we my do. clients to walk in and go, wow, that's amazing. No, so you changed we'll my do, life. Yes, yes. That's but the nicest enough. thing anyone can ever say yes. to you, is you changed my life. Very would say, I'm just in it for the work. I'm just doing this. and. I'm I'm just going to walk away. I don't care if you don't like it. That just doesn't happen. It's very, I, I don't know anybody who designs that way. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And it does affect your own confidence as well and your self-belief. I mean, we've all been doing this for more than 10 years. So you do have, you realise that you have to have the courage of a conviction and think, that's what I thought. That's what I'm going with. But sometimes you're halfway through and they're putting doubt in your mind thinking, have I really lost the plot this time? Mm. Did, did Sporty Spice not want those stripes? <laughs> so it's having the courage of your convictions to stay with things as well. And go back and say, no, you've paid for this service. This is what I'm giving to you. Please let me deliver this for you. You're going to love it. And a, a really big anxiety must be you thinking, does the client actually have the, the funding to actually see this project through? That's always established. We never embark on a project until costs have been discussed up front. Everybody knows what it's going to cost. There's the horror that maybe they didn't have the money and they've committed to it. I mean, we've not had that touch wood, but I mean, I'm sure it could happen. Um, but a client will never know, not will never embark on a project not knowing what it's going to cost. Now, obviously, we've not got x-ray eyes. If you lift a floorboard and you find dry rot, as happened to us in a project last week, there's nothing we could have done about that. But that's. But I'd like to think that most sensible clients would actually have a little bit of a buffer for something well, like and that. And that designers should recommend a contingency too. Yeah, surely. No, absolutely. So because something like that is just a nightmare. Yeah, you can't be on that. But that goes back to being you're not a builder. Yes. It just goes back to you're not a one size fits all. So you, I'm you, a designer. Not you're a, a designer. You're part of the process. You're not all of the process. It's so important. But in the knowables, they will know exactly what's, mm. what it's going to cost before it starts. Should clients expect designers to give them sample schemes before employing them? No, I think by that time they should have, have a trust with you that they have an expectation and you can see from their catalogue of works um, that exchange will come in the first stage when you're doing the design proposal for them and then they're engaging in something you've prepared for them. but. Um, Nothing. I don't think anyone should be working for free. It's a design process. Interestingly, when I started 30 years ago, there was no internet. There was possibly an argument for it then because a, a designer was employing, a client was employing you without maybe knowing exactly what your style was, what you could do. And so perhaps there might have been an argument then. I think now with the internet and most designers catalogue, you know, whether you've been in magazines or whatever, you can see that the client, the, the designer is competent. So there should be no necessity to actually prove your ability before being engaged.
I would say. We, we have put a proposal together though for some larger packages because we've, we've been asked to be competitive with other designers so we might want to win the project so we would just put a, a concept proposal but we work quite hard at that, that can take, that can yeah. take a few days yeah. and we do, obviously we go the extra mile because we want to win the contract so it's kind of swings and roundabouts. There's also the fee proposal. So when you're tendering for a project, you're going to be up against other designers, presumably. So how do you decide what to actually put in your fee proposal? We try to put everything. We try to include everything, um, right down to the latter of the procurement of product. Um, and, and, and then there's the, the tender area of how much do you give your client of any discounts, if you get any discounts anywhere. That's always a really, really good thing to kind of win a little bit trust back. So that unfortunately in our, in our world of design, you know, that really does go a long way. It goes part and package of the trust. If they think, you know, you're working with a, a brand, Tom Dixon, Andrew Martin, whatever, you know, they like to think that they're just getting a little bit of something back if they're going to go with you as a designer. And that's how we, we kind of work. I don't know about you guys, mm. but just give them a little bit of something back. But if, you, if, you've, if the client has gone out to three designers and has said, this is the brief, this is the brief, this is the brief, and got three different fee proposals back from three individual designers, you three, for example, for the same job, and the numbers at the bottom of that page are vastly different, what questions should the client be asking to drill down and actually understand what's been quoted for? Because clearly they're not going to be like for like. No, but the, it, there are many ways to skin a cat and companies charge in different ways. So you have to ask them how they're charging yeah. and what services they're providing. So some. how have you calculated this? What have you included Absolutely. For? Yeah. And some will have included, you know, if we're doing bathrooms, there'll be visuals, there'll be elevations, <laughs> there'll be all sorts of things included in that. And somebody else has maybe put together a wee presentation. So it's very, very important to find out what it is that designers providing for you so that you can assess the fees and you can assess what you're being charged for. So simply, I would say you contact each designer, you find out what what's included, what's not included. I'd like to think the fee proposal does include and sort of state all these things, but but yeah, everyone works slightly differently, so it's important. And I think the, the more vague it is, the more of a red flag it is to a client, because if they don't see a true breakdown, of everything that you're trying to do and even we even do it to the number of days it's going to take us sometimes not that we work on just an hourly rate in that way but because obviously there's got to be a contingency there of time and time running over but it, they, it, it, it's a true transparency it depends who the client is I mean if it's a builder or a private client completely different because they'll be offsetting costs in different ways that you don't even know about um, thinking about reuse further down the line so I try and base every fee proposal on a particular client based on that project and really that's the only way to do it. Do you think clients expect interior designers to uh, prepare a contract for them to sign? I think in this day and age they do and I certainly wouldn't attempt to do a project without it. 
uh, because it's a safety net for everyone. Yes, for the client as much as for us. The yeah. client needs to know what's included, what they're going to get for their money, what, you know, how long the process is going to last, how many visits, etc., etc. And we need to know anything that's not in that contract isn't included, and that should be a flag to, to anyone that actually, you know, that, and it is a way to differentiate between different designers as well. You know, so you asked about the fee earlier, and how do you um, judge what's in, you know, if one is is low and the other is high how can you tell the difference that contract should say and it should should I think I think what we were saying about with the red flag anyone any designer that's just happy to take a basic brief run with it not give you true figures but give you a a guideline of figure with no contract you'd run a mile from Mm -hmm. definitely shall we give a round of applause I think that's been brilliant Now we're going to open up the um, floor to questions. So would anybody like to ask our panellists here a question? We do have a roving mic, I believe. So stick your hand in the air if you've got a question. Hi, um, Nikki made a good point earlier about future-proofing houses. Um, I wanted to ask, there was a very good podcast in the series about designing for the third age. It's one of my favourites. And I wondered with an ageing population, are people starting to consider more um, how they design the house to be adaptable for later life? Definitely, definitely. Um, I'm actually doing it myself uh, for a project that we're doing in Edinburgh right now, thinking about bedrooms on ground floors and how that adapts into bathrooms. But yeah, definitely, of all elements of future proofing and obviously energy and sustainability, and we could go down a rabbit hole with all of that, but yeah, definitely. That could also be quite a political conversation though, John, if, if you know that you've got to design for that and the client doesn't thinks they might still be 30 or 40 and in fact they're 60 or 70. Be honest. Well, it, it, yeah, how do you deal with that? Again, it's building the relationship where they will take your advice. And I always turn things around and say, in my experience, and I'm usually a lot older than not. If I'm a lot older than I'm saying, in my experience, my first apartment had a spiral staircase upstairs into a bed platform, which was great. Mm. But now in my late 50s, where I'm up during the night researching different things, I didn't want to be going up and down the spiral staircase all the time. So I'm future-proofing myself, so please take my advice. I'm thinking about your longevity. It could be guests coming to stay with you, Mm. building houses or rooms in the garden for your relatives that can come and stay, or if they have to have, you know, care. It's a big, big different world out there when you're considering a design concept now. Have there have been things that you've thought about the client hasn't thought about? Oh, frequently, because actually that's what we said earlier. You get to know your clients really well. And you also, you find out how many children they've got, the dog, do they want to walk, wash the dog on the way into the house? You just, it's the question, it's part of your job. You just have to ask the questions about how they want to use the space. And then whether it is future-proofing them or whether it's thinking about the kids and all the clutter they come in with from school and you actually just do not want it left in a pile at the front door and you know it, it's just that that's just part of the job has there been anything that you've ever uh, not been told in a brief but you found out midway through a project that suddenly you've got a design for Nikki you're sh- you're nodding to that one yeah lots of times again going back to the brief there's very few projects that we've ever delivered where there has been a true identity to a brief I don't know about you guys but it's absolutely you know we start off here and we kind of we work it out ways, but um, yeah, you get right down and they need a cinema room. 
they've decided they've just seen something on Pinterest that they've seen that week or that they've been to some amazing hotel, they've been traveling and they've just got to have it. So yeah, that happens a lot. I usually find that once you start a project, it can sometimes start quite small. And then once, once everyone gets comfortable with each other, it suddenly grows arms and legs. And actually that can be a shame, you know, because often they'll start with maybe the principal room in the house where actually they really would have gone, you know, you know, all bells and whistles and everything. But actually, and so that was their big spend, but then they think actually that worked out quite nice. And so you end up with other rooms and then, because then they know what you can really do. But actually we could have done much more with that first room because, but everyone was still finding their feet. That so they get bolder as the project yeah, continues. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Your clients evolve with you. Yeah, yeah they, they, they come on a journey with you and, you, and they learn from you mm -hmm. and they become more confident in their own taste. It's a, it's a lovely, th a lovely thing to watch. It's a really nice thing. You do have to try and get that information up front as soon as possible so that you're not making critical changes further down the line. When Ellie comes home from college and She's been away for three months and her turpins worth gets put in and then you're having to maybe be like a, a school teacher trying to design by committee which is the worst thing that you want because it goes in all different directions and people lose confidence in what they've said right one final question from me what is the oddest most unexpected thing you have ever been asked to design I'll jump in on that one. I once had a wonderful gentleman who came to me and said he wanted his bedroom done up as a Tarte's boudoir, which I thought was fabulous. So it was, it was a wonder, it was a brief that I didn't expect. Did he um, have a Tarte to put in his boudoir? I don't, I don't think his inclinations ran in that direction. But it was, it was wonderful. We used a timorous beasties wallpaper, a fabulous wallpaper called Oriental Orchid. And it's the most beautiful paper and it's got a, a red orchid going up it. But overlaid on that in gloss is a ménage à quatre, I think. I always tried to count the people, but you could only see it if you looked at it at certain angles. So it was beautiful. We paired it with a fabulous bed. I'd like to think it was the most tasteful tarts bed, boudoir. That he'd, well. He maybe maybe see hadn't that. seen, but it was a good <laughs> one. Yeah. And and John, have you designed anything weird? Um, anything you've been asked? Keeping it clean. <laughs> you don't have to keep it clean. Just certainly on sixty-minute makeover, I was asked to do quite a few surprising things because it did have a surprise element. But I think in the real world, I think I was doing um, a nice house out in Bothwell, a nice part of Glasgow, and. The wee girl was quite into brats at the time, a bit like Spice Girls in doll fashion. And I had been asked to make a chair for the room and she wanted a high fake for slipperette chaise. And we did. I got one of the props guys at Scottish Television to make it for me. Um, it probably wouldn't have passed any British kite standard <laughs> thing. There was quite a lot of glue gun. It was safe enough, but I think that's probably, probably the only one I can talk about in public. I have one. I have one. A basement nightclub on Oxford Street years ago. The guy wanted us to design um, like a pulley cord system for the champagne to be delivered to the tables. It was the cheesiest thing I've ever seen, but we did it. We did it. <laughs> we did do it. That is weird. Susie, you've got to share your story. Okay, so I, the weirdest thing I was ever asked to design was a colonic irrigation suite. <laughs> <laughs> we'd done we'd done beauty treatment rooms up in West Hampstead, no, in Hampstead, um, Belsize Lane, um, in a muse, and some more space became available, and the client decided he wanted to put in a, a colonic irrigation suite. So for about 
three months, I became the world authority on delivering water to a patient at exactly 37 degrees centigrade from any distance. <laughs> I'm sure that's coming useful. You win. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, a round of applause. I think it's been fantastic. <laughs> I'd like to thank you, Jackie, John and Nikki. Brilliant conversation. Really enjoyed that. I hope you've enjoyed it too. And thank you to Sofa.com for hosting us here today in Glasgow. Brilliant showroom. You should all come and visit if you're listening or watching. And um, a final thank you to you, our audience. You've been terrific. We do hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please do get in touch on our social channels. We're at Interior Design Business Pod. And please share any feedback that you like. The Interior Design Business is a Wildwood Plus production. Thank you very much for listening.